Gigantor. I was his babysitter. He looks back at you and you're like, <laughs> what is going on, Rearview Movies fans? We're so excited to have you with us for this February episode where we're going to talk about one of the greatest love stories ever told. That is the love story between a woman and a man who are about to be blown up on a bus. With me, as always, I've got Trevor. I've got Heather. Did you guys have a wonderful uh, beginning of the year into February? Absolutely. It was just busy with birthday after birthday. Yeah, same. Lots of birthdays on the front end here. And I'm not even past it yet. So we still got more coming up. <laughs> nice. Yes, we, we have a, a, a pretty killer opening to all of our years with birthdays. It's it's pretty stout. So I guess jumping right into it, uh, you know, we did wrap up the year in movies and didn't get to talk too much about the retrospective on the 2023 movies. But uh, Trevor, do you want to take a minute? Let's talk about some of those top movies from last year. Yeah. So because we're not paid to do this and it's not our living we don't get a chance to see all these movies before the end of the year no we gotta wait for them to roll out into our area you know we don't get to go sit in a movie theater in the big city and watch movies and we don't get them sent to our laptops so that we can watch them in the comfort of our own home like a lot of these other critics do so we gotta wait to pay for them on our own yeah not even a comp ticket maybe somewhere on the horizon but not right now and yeah we need more listeners <laughs> so I think I finally have got my my top 10 figured out for this year. So I can uh, we can go through that. If you want to hear what I thought were the 10 best movies of 2023. No, don't keep me in suspense. Let's hit it. Yeah. All right. So at number 10, I got uh, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, which is really, really good. Obviously, these are all really good because they're in my of course. top 10 list. But <laughs> I love Wes Anderson, and that's probably one of the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> it's a crime. The man's not been... Uh, given an oscar yet but he's actually up for one this year in the live action short category so maybe he finally gets one hmm. uh, in live action could... short <laughs> yeah hey you know as long as he gets one it's all that matters you know statue looks the same yep yep number nine i got air ben affleck movie with uh matt damon and jason bateman so good yeah um and now i i didn't even realize this until after i finished making the list and decided that i was done with it my next eight are all up for best picture <laughs> so oh, nice so if you want to know my rankings of the best picture, there's only two that I don't have on there, which would be Barbie did not make my list. No surprise. And uh, the other one I left off was American Fiction, which was really good. Mm -hmm. um, but I think <clears throat> I think that ended up at like number 11 or 12 on my list. So it was right there underneath it. But so number eight, we'll have uh, Maestro, the Bradley Cooper movie. Really good in there, I think. Mm -hmm. Everybody says all he wants to do is win an Oscar, and that's why he's doing these types of movies. But yeah, I don't know. I thought it was still really good, though. Mm, how dare uh, the guy I, have goals? Yeah. Number seven, we have Killers of the Flower Moon, the three and a half hour Scorsese epic, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. Number six, a movie you and I saw, Poor Things. Yep. Really, really great. Really, really weird. I was Definitely trying to tell weird, somebody. Yes. I was trying to say, like, it's the most absurd movie I've seen since. And I had to think about it for a second. I was like, wait a minute. It's the most absurd movie I've seen since last year. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, <laughs> all at once. So, yeah, I thought it would be longer since I've seen something that crazy. But no. Top five. Now, number five, Anatomy of a Fall. French movie that, uh, or no, French and German and all that. I think it was based out of France, but it's mm -hmm. there's like three languages in there. Anatomy of a Fall, great movie. It won the Palme d'Or at a can back in May. And then number four, another movie we saw, Oppenheimer. Yep. I believe that is probably poised to win Best Picture at the Oscars next month. So we'll see. <laughs> Top three, the bronze medal goes to Past Lives, one that you guys saw, I know. And that is... It was. Number two, the uh, 
horrific zone of interest. Oh yeah. We went and saw that one a couple weeks ago and that was uh, something else. Yes. Um, I'm always trying to write and come up with like really good, you know, horror movie ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to retire from that now because I don't (laughs) think I can top how horrifying that movie is, even though it's not a horror film. Right. It's not horror in the traditional sense that anything's going to gross you out or scare you, but it's just going to leave you breathless for so much of the movie. Yeah. I mean, that's one that I thought of for a very long time after that. So, and then number one, my best picture of the year is The Holdovers which I loved. I loved every frame of that movie from the second it started until the second it ended. I don't know as of when we're recording, I don't really know if Paul Giamatti is going to win Best Actor for that yet. I think he could, but I'm not there yet. I still think right now that could be Killian Murphy from Oppenheimer, but I, I hope Paul Giamatti would win that one. He's very, very deserving in that role, and he's deserved it many times over already, and he's been passed over way too many times. So he's... Hopefully we'll we'll get that this year. And that is it. That is my top 10 of 2023. <laughs> well, the 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 wife and I are going to kind of split the top 10 of 2023 on this one. Uh, admittedly, because uh, number one, I watch a lot of different movies, but I try not to spend too much time on them because, you know, my wife does like to occasionally see me and have help around the house. Uh, not to mention <laughs> my wife also likes to get out of said house from time to time. So uh, we are going to split since she did see roughly half of the ones that are on my top 10 list. Uh, decidedly slightly more, I guess, to put it politely, more popcornish. There's definitely more popular uh, type films in my top 10, but it doesn't at all mean I think the other ones are bad. If there's one that's on Trevor's list that I did not have in there, it may just be because I did not see it. Example number one, I have not seen the holdovers yet, but uh, I am sure it is every bit as good as Trevor says it is. So Heather, tell me about one of your uh, top 10 films. I loved the movie Air. I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan, and that was a super fun story for me to uh, sit back and enjoy. I definitely knew parts of that story uh, from some of the basketball background and Michael Jordan standing aside. It is a very, very good story in general. So uh, a very good story. I would agree with that. I do have to give one honorable mention because it will not be on anybody's top 10 of 2023, but it was good, stupid fun. And that was cocaine bear. I went to see that earlier this year and it was, it was, it was stupid fun. That's Trevor shaking it, his that's head. like the second or third from the bottom for me. I thought yeah. it was terrible. Right. Well, it, it's it's again for cocaine beer. You're not expecting uh, you're not expecting great American cinema. No, but I, I should be expecting good storytelling, and that movie lacked it from the well, beginning. Well, you know, I guess that's why it's my honorable mention, not the top ten anywhere yep. outside the top ten. <laughs> so I will go ahead and go with uh, my. The, the three I'll put in the popcorn category as in their popular releases. I enjoyed them. Uh, I would put them all together. That would be Guardians 3 across the Spider-Verse and Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers only because it was just about time for us to have a good Mario movie. Yes. The one from when we were kids was positively terrible and yep. dark and weird and just about <laughs> as creepy. Yeah. Oh. yeah, that one was really good. I saw that one when it came out and it was excellent. I was very upset that Jack Black was not nominated for his Peach song. <laughs> it so. was very funny. Very, very good casting there. I thought it was a really good, uh, really good role. And now that being said, it made so much money. We will have an endless stream of video game releases over the next few years. Um, oh, they're making a Princess Peach video game. It's coming out in are. March. Uh, yeah. they're, also, they're making a Donkey Kong standalone movie, I think. And they're making a Legend of Zelda film, which if you're a Zelda fan, you know all the different branches of that franchise. It's going to be interesting how they make that work. But the, the to, Zelda movie is the only one that's really kind of moving right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a live action one. Huh. Yeah, which is going to be very interesting uh, given the topic there. Yeah. Next here, I'm going to do two more movies that uh, I don't, one of them came out in theaters. I don't think the other one did, but they were both very good. Uh, that would be Tetris and Dumb Money. 
Uh, I saw Tetris um, in theaters, went to see it uh, at the Alamo. It was, it was very, very good. And the funny part is if you ever look at that story, that story, like most of it is real. Just some of the way it was portrayed was obviously hyped up for story, but key parts of that were absolutely the way they happened. Yeah. I I didn't expect that a movie about Tetris would be like a cold war thriller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. Yes. Yes. They, then, they were basically like, how can we take this story about a video game and make it part of the Cold War? And that's exactly what happened. And then Dumb Money was pretty good, too. I enjoyed that. I thought I could only compare it to Big Short, maybe just because it was dealing with the stocks or whatever. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Short did it better, but this one was still pretty good. I enjoyed it. Uh, Paul yeah, Dano, I like that right? one. Paul Dano was really good. Paul Dano's really good every time he gets in front of the camera. Yeah, pa- Paul Dano was excellent. He uh, he played uh, Roaring Kitty. He was very, very good. I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. him in that. And uh, yeah, d- different different perspective maybe than the Big Short. Big Short's a little more global. Dumb Money was a little smaller. Let's take it from these individual people's stories. So I thought that was good. So the top five, um, Heather, start with uh, start with that romantic, uh, romantic film that's part of uh, our top five. Oh, Past Lives. I really enjoyed that film. That is a Korean film. We've mentioned it before. It was just so well done. The story is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. And it's just, it was just a phenomenal story. And it just kind of made me think about the difference in storytelling from uh, the Korean point of view versus an American point of view, because it's just my opinion. And Trevor, you can you can jump in here if you don't think I'm uh, if you think I'm off base. But, you know, at the end, you see, um, you know, the guy who came to visit, he turns around and spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Sorry. But you see him turn around and and leave. And that's the it. That's the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think like on the American side, if that were an American film. Oh, no, the, she's leaving her husband. They're ending up together. It's this. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, what do you think? It's very real. Like, Mm because I think that's how that would really play out in real life. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of the real life drama friction and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, The real life drama that would come with it because it wouldn't be clean. No matter which decision you made, neither one of them would be perfectly clean. There'd be some drama. There'd be some baggage. She does a really good job selling that, too, because she's kind of torn in a way. I don't think she's ever thinking like she's going to, you know, leave the life that she has for this guy but i i still think she's she's got that kind of in the front of her mind like you know what could have been so mm-hmm. they really just kind of explore that idea which is really good and people can go up and down all they want about how margot robbie was robbed of an oscar nomination but no mm-hmm. greta lee in this movie yes. was rob was the one that was mm-hmm. robbed of the oscar nomination not margot robbie unfortunately about as well done of a love triangle film as i have seen mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and as Trevor has pointed out previously, a feather in the cap of what is an increasingly feathered cap of Korean cinema. Oh yeah. That's where the best stuff is coming from. Hands down. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number four is a film that Trevor did not see. I did see it. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. That's iron claw. Uh, that is the film about the Von Erich dynasty. I had to see it cause I was a wrestling fan had been since I was a kid, but it, it is just a very well-made movie. Um, huge props to everybody who was in that, uh, Jeremy Allen white was in that he was very good. And Zach Efron was also very good. So mm-hmm. Um, the only exception being that the guy who played Ric Flair 
either. I don't know. The, it did not translate is, is all I'm going <laughs> to say about it nicely. <laughs> and my top three are going to be no surprise based on what Trevor was just talking about. Poor things for me comes in at number three, super, as he said, super out there. And even I would say more out there than everything everywhere all at once, because oh, yeah, like in, in a different way, but still in a good way. Number two is zone of interest, completely unforgettable. Now I'll qualify that by saying, I don't think it's something that I'm comfortable watching a second time, but yeah, I'll, I'll probably watch it again. I'll probably watch it again just to sort of pick up on some of the little things in the background. Yeah. For those that don't know, the movie's about a family living in Germany in the 1940s. We all know what was going on then over there. And they're just trying to live their best life and live the life they can, raise their kids, you know, just be be a happy family. The only thing is about this family is the husband, the father, he works at the Auschwitz concentration camp and the house is set up right on the other side of the walls. He's the commandant. The commandant, wow. yeah. Uh, so they never take the camera into the concentration camp. It stays in the, the yard and in the house the whole time. Mm-hmm. But you hear everything going on on the other side of the walls. And that's what makes it so creepy is you don't ever see it. You just hear it. And the way that movie had made up with sound design is just absolutely incredible. And I did yes. a lot of reading about it when I got home from it to figure out or to learn a little bit more about what they did for the sound there. It's very, very impressive. It's actually up for best sound. And I think on the surface, you'd look at that category and say probably Oppenheimer is going to get that. But honestly, I think that one's going to probably take it. Really. I would say Zone of Interest sound is better. That movie doesn't work without that element. So Right. It adds, right? It really elevates, elevates the film. There's a scene and it's in the trailer. So I'm not really spoiling anything, but there's a scene where the family is having a pool party by that little bitty pool they have. And the the father is kind of standing out looking on the family like, you know, dads do sometimes when they're watching everything. But then you see a train go by off in the distance. Yeah. It's just stuff like that. It's just a lot of background stuff that's going through. And like, you know where they are and you know what that, you know, who's on that train and what's right. going to happen. You know? you know, who's on the train, you know what they're going in there for, but all you see is this train just puffing smoke headed down the road. You're like, um, 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 and yeah, very, very great tension. And my number one uh, for the year is Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was so, so good. I do think it's going to win. Uh, I think it's going to win best picture. That would be what I would choose. I thought it was very, very good. And uh, maybe it, like again, a well-deserved Oscar for, for Christopher Nolan, in my opinion. If we're looking at predictions for the the ceremony next month i'd say that one's right now is is in the driver's seat to win it nolan just won the director's guild award that usually correlates more recently it's been off more times than it's been on but that's still a very good kind of barometer for what's what's going to win best director and usually if you win best director you win best picture too Mm -hmm. again doesn't work that way all the time it's pretty accurate and i'd say that's you probably get those two right there pretty easily um and then i said earlier that I thought Killian Murphy was probably looking at best actor. I'm not certain of that yet. Let's wait to see what the Screen Actors Guild does. That's always a good indication of where where things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's between him and Paul Giamatti. And then best actress again, same thing here. I'm kind of split between Lily Gladstone. I think she's probably the front runner right now, but Emma Stone is right on her tail. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Get there. I think the supporting categories are done. I think. Robert Downey Jr. is going to win for Oppenheimer. And I think uh, Divine Joy Randolph is going to win for Holdovers. I don't think there's any contest there. Maybe Robert Downey gets upset, but there won't be any upset in that in the supporting actress category that that lady's mm-hmm. got it. So I but, would see yeah. it as an upset if Robert didn't win because he kind of dominated that role. Yeah. So my vote would be for Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. And if he were to win, that would certainly, I'd be thrilled to see that because I think that was the better performance. But, you know, they 
this is a huge redemption story for RDJ. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, he was in the 80s and then he kind of started to show his dramatic acting chops in the early 90s. And then all of his legal troubles started popping off. And, you know, if it weren't for Iron Man, he would just be a footnote now. And mm-hmm. well, now and he launches just... the Marvel Cinematic Universe with that film, too, yeah. which is, you know, looking back what the stakes would have been for what, you know, people didn't think was that big a deal at the time. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's one of those it's time awards. Like mm-hmm. they're just going to give it to him because of that. I think he's really good in the role. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I think there were there were better performances. I even th- I would I would actually put Ryan Gosling over Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. for Barbie. Um, yeah, I thought he was the best part of that movie. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Well, but like you said, sometimes, sometimes it's more than the performance, right? Like when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio won the Oscar for the Revenant, it was the, the Revenant. I think he got the yeah, Oscar for, I thought his performance in the aviator was way better. Oh yeah. And that's another one of those makeup awards. I guess it's like, it's kind of, Hey, it's, it's time we've looked him over for this and this and this. And now we just really need to give him one. Yeah, it's time for him to get a date. Yeah. I mean, same with Scorsese. I mean, he got like, he had so many great movies that didn't win, like Taxi Driver in the 70s and Raging Bull in the 80s and Goodfellas in the 90s. And like, he didn't win for any of these. And then you look back on these movies that beat it, and it's kind of like, ah, you know, maybe he should have won at least two of those, uh, if not all three of them. So, and then we get to The Departed, which is not a bad movie. No, but it's not on the same level as those three are. And that was kind of the makeup award there. Like, hey, you know, here's your career achievement Oscar and we're finally able to get it to you. Right. Sure. Well, uh, speaking of the Oscar for best sound, we actually do have that one on our list right now. This film won the 1995 Oscar for best sound effects, editing and for best sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trevor, tell us about Speed. Speed is our movie this week, and I'm excited to talk about it. So this is Speed, released on June 10th of 1994. So this falls into our 30-year category. I cannot believe this movie is 30 years old. It stars Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Daniels, Joe Morton, Alan Ruck. You know Alan Ruck from uh, Ferris <laughs> the same. Bueller? Yeah. yeah. Cameron. Uh, yeah. Richard Lineback, Beth Grant, uh, Carlos Caresco, and Daniel Villarreal. This movie is directed by Jan de Bont, his first movie that he directed. He would follow this with only a few more movies. Twister came out a couple years later. Mm-hmm. And then the terrible sequel to this movie, Speed 2. <laughs> um, the remake of The Haunting, which was also terrible. And then the Laura Croft Tomb Raider sequel, The Cradle of Life. And that's it. He's done. He hasn't directed another movie since then. Mm-hmm. Huh. But, but it should be sense- noted, it is a very successful cinematographer, right? Yeah, I was just about to say, he is also the director of photography for Die Hard, which might be where his interest in this kind of came into play. Mm-hmm. This was written by Graham Yost. This was a what they call a spec script in Hollywood, uh, meaning that uh, he, he wasn't paid to write this. He wrote this on his own time and then tried to pitch it later on. His first title was Minimum Speed. <laughs> so they had to, to drop huh. the minimum out of there because uh, I, I can see, better. yeah, I can see. That That's pretty work. bad, yeah. Um, so. Interesting modern writing note as well. If you look at this, this individual was uh, brought in to do some rewrites. I guess uh, the person is uncredited, was listed as uncredited at the time, but is is now in the credits as a script doctor. Apparently, they gave Joss Whedon a couple of cracks at rewriting parts yeah. of the script. That happens all the time. There's every script has different people that go through it and take a crack at it or just clean up. Some stuff it's like we need some better dialogue so i know joss whedon with his um you know he's known for his sharp dialogue and i think you can kind of 
pick up on some of that stuff here. The scenes at the beginning with the, you know, when the elevator stalls and the guy goes, what button did you push? I mean, that's that's a Joss Whedon line right there. I can guarantee that. I was that mortified, by the way, by the first scene of this movie. <laughs> In case you're curious how this film is rated R, he like digs a tool man into the guy's head to open the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, I, was, and <laughs> I looked at Scotty and I was like, really? Really? You expect like, me to watch this? Like, don't worry, this isn't going to happen much for the rest of the, the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We got a budget of $30 million for this movie, which is just insane to think that this was what $30 million looked like 30 years ago. Yep. Because $30 million now would look like past lives. It's had a $14 million opening weekend when that was the weekend, when that was the amount of money you would need to win a weekend. Now you might not even place in the top five. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ended up pulling wow. in 121 million uh, domestically overall worldwide. It got 350 million dollars. This was a huge, huge hit. It was one yep. of the top grossing movies of the year, and it was everywhere. I mean, people people loved it. You mentioned before it was up for best sound and best sound effects editing. It won them both. It was also up for best film editing at the Oscars that year. It did not win. It lost to Force Gump. And then the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. You remember those, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, RIP, RIP. Blockbuster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you remember you'd like go in, they had a little voting board that you could vote on? Oh, I'm, I'm wow. sure Sandra still has that award, you know, proudly displayed. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's right next to her Oscar and she cherishes them both equally. <laughs> Either that or it's next to the salt and pepper shakers in the top cabinet. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I put that in because I was like, man, that's funny. Blockbuster Entertainment Award. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was... I mean, that was at a time when uh, you had award shows like that. You had the People's Choice Awards. You had that. That still goes on, too, but I don't think it's quite yeah. as popular as it is now or as it was then. And then this one, Blockbuster Entertainment Award, which, I mean, people like that stuff because it, it kind of felt like they were a part of it. You know, yeah. MTV Awards, those are still around, too. But mm -hmm. being that this was such a hugely popular movie in 1994, we're actually missing it as the Blockbuster Award winner that year for Best Picture or the MTV Award winner for Best Picture that year. And I know MTV's off the top of my head, but I don't know the Blockbuster one off the top of my head but i'm going to take a guess at what it was i'll have a look while you're guessing can you do you have a can you take a guess at what other movie came out this year that probably would have beat beat this i believe true lies came out the same year yeah but that wasn't it hmm, so sure. i would have to say it's probably going to be pulp fiction Let's and see. that one was the kind of the movie I think most people remember out of 1994 more than anything else. Probably that's the one that sort of stood the test of time that and Shawshank. All um, right. So good old 1995 blockbuster entertainment award, favorite action actor, Harrison Ford for clear and present danger. Oh my God, come on. That movie's, <laughs> that movie's a snooze fest. Mm -hmm. uh, favorite comedy actor. Not going to surprise you. Uh, Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura, pet detective. Oh, he probably won for all three Except of them. So that this is the, this is the year of Carrey, right? I mean, yeah. this was a big year for him. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see here. Oh, it looks like uh, there was actually a... Okay, so uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was nominated for True Lies for Action Adventure. Favorite male newcomer, favorite pop female, favorite actor. Oh, it doesn't look like they had a best movie uh, category. Wow. Interesting. Well, I know the MTV huh. Award was... Um, I know the MTV Award was uh, went to Pulp Fiction because I remember Quentin's... Uh, his um, acceptance speech because he, he kind of referenced this one. Gets up there at the microphone and goes, Pop quiz! <laughs> you go to all the award shows and lose your force. <laughs> nice. You want to win best picture what do you do what do you, you come do? to the mtv awards <laughs> that's pretty clever i like that yeah yeah that's um, he's a smart guy so oh, very smart guy very <laughs> smart guy um heather take us through some of the critical information uh, about this film and and some of how the because there's some interesting notes i think in the audience reaction 
so Rotten Tomatoes score. This was a really well liked movie. Uh, Ninety five score um, from Rotten Tomatoes. Audience score of seventy six. And it says a terrific popcorn thriller. Speed is taut, tense, and energetic with outstanding performances from Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, and Sandra Bullock. I'm not sure you pronounced that first name correctly. Trevor, can you help us with that? What was that name again? Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> 20-point difference between the Rotten Tomatoes critics and the audience. That's a pretty solid gap. That surprises me a little bit. I wonder what some of those audience reviews are. I'd be interested to see. I would be curious to see how much it is a previous, like a new generation watching a previous generation film. The dialogue was horrible. So there's that. Well, see, I think some of the dialogue is horrible and some of it's not. Like you mentioned, that might be that Joss Whedon line, you know, Bob, what button did you push? That line was pretty funny for the moment because it- yeah. Got to laugh. But then, you know, later on where the guy standing at the bottom of the elevator and he goes, well, usually they fall down now. That's, so that's a Joss that line, line too. So- that's got to be a Joss line, I think, because that's just, oh. that's a dark humor right there. Yeah. Yeah. Because usually the they fall down I said it so now. like matter of factly. <laughs> usually they fall down. How many elevators do you see falling in downtown Los Angeles? Yeah. And it was something about the, it was something about the character, the way the person delivered the line too. It just, it was kind of laissez faire. I don't know. Uh, maybe not a pondered over line, but yeah. So yeah, 20 point gap kind of gets me. I think it might be one of those because I think Speed's one of those movies that when you look at it 20 years later, there's things that are glaringly obvious to us that audiences that time period really didn't care about. Mm-hmm. Like um, what? Some of the, some of the lines, you know, because I mean, you don't go to popcorn thrillers for great writing, right? You don't go to popcorn thrillers for amazing realistic dialogue. You occasionally go for the, you know, for the, for the ham-fisted line. Yeah, but the woman's line about, oh, my shoe, when, you know, she's running out of the elevator. And I was like, really? Really? That's your takeaway? (laughs) F your shoes, lady. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what did Roger Ebert have to say about this film? Because again, I thought this was surprising uh, given Roger Ebert's uh, opinion towards movies. Well, he gave it four stars and he said, speed is like an ingenious windup machine. It's a smart, inventive thriller that starts with hostages trapped on an elevator and continues with two chase scenes on a bus, one on a subway. So that's it. Wall-to-wall action, stunts, special effects, and excitement. We've seen this done before, but seldom so well, or at such a high pitch of energy. Am I the only one that in the rear view completely forgot about both the elevator and the subway? No, I remember all that. I I forgot those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, I guess the the original original script that was sold didn't even have those two on there. The, the whole movie was just contained on the bus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did so. read that when they did some test screenings, they actually had the, the train scene animated, like just to just to get it out there and have it animated. And the crowd reacted so well to it and they thought they were going to have a hit on their hands. So then they financed and went back and reshot the train part. Huh. At least what mm-hmm. I had read, but <laughs> how about the fact that uh, we have not one, but two, ECU alumni in this movie. Oh, right. Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Beth Grant. I had no idea she went to East Carolina. I didn't know that either. She certainly did. Props to Beth Grant. She's awesome. We also, the three of us at least, know her for her role as uh, Dwight's date at the dinner party in the office. (laughs) Her other classic role. Yeah, I was his babysitter. Oh, man. I I had to verify this too, but um, she also had one of my favorite lines ever in a movie. Are you talking about a line in Donnie Darko? Heck yeah. <laughs> he told me to forcibly insert the lifeline card into my anus. Yep. What? There's a scene, again, Donnie Darko is an older movie, but um, there's a scene in it where she plays this like kind of semi-religious like school marm type who's supposed to be teaching the kids about something. And uh, the main character, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, is kind of this angsty teenager. And so 
they're giving like lifeline activities and they're trying to get him to participate and they're kind of goading him and poking him, trying to get him to participate. He and just uh, he just doesn't want to, he doesn't see the point. He's being yeah, like typical high school kid stuff, yeah. right? I don't want to do mm-hmm. this. Um, okay. And she, she kind of forces the issue with him. And so later on, there's a scene where she's getting very upset talking about what happened. And she just says, so matter of factly, he, he told me to forcibly insert the lifeline card into my anus. No, he told you to shove it up your yeah. <laughs> but the, the way he said it was it's oh. perfect delivery. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I almost peed my pants when I saw that. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, very, very funny. Well, well done. So speaking of uh, Yad Nabat's other uh, other sort of projects, I actually in the beginning in the credit scene with the music, there's times where I hear Twister's theme in this music. Well, so the music's by Mark Mancia. Did he do the Twister? I did not uh, look that up. Well? I have to check. I bet he did. Yeah. Fun fact that uh, that opening credit sequence is shot uh, on a model that wasn't in a real in a real elevator shaft. Mm. But I remember right they built it sideways on the ground and they sent the camera like horizontally across the ground and then flipped it. You are correct. Mark Mancina also did the sound for Twister. I also did make the line, uh, the joke on this, that this ends the same way that Twister ends. They have the, literally the exact same ending. Mm-hmm. Um, the male and female <laughs> characters who are supposed to be love interests survive some very dangerous situation and they celebrate by furiously making out while people watch. That's yeah, a little that's, weird. That's how Twister ended it. You're right. So if we're talking about this, when did you first see this movie? Well, I think I saw this film. Let me see. 19... Oh, Oh gosh, I'm not even thinking about that. I actually saw it on, I think I caught it on cable a few years later is Uh when I saw it. I liked it. I thought it was entertaining. It's a good film to watch. You know, when you got a couple minutes to sit down, at least definitely parts of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you? I had never seen this movie before. So Really? This was yeah, the first this... time watching it? Mm-hmm. Wow. It was, yeah. Yeah, I saw this on video after it came out. Um, I wanted to see it in the theater, but I wasn't allowed to. Something about taking an 11-year-old to an R-rated movie is probably frowned upon. I know my, my friend's older brother got to see it. He was only two years older than us, so at 13, he was in the theater watching it and came back and bragged about it. So, oh well. But the movie came out on video in... November of 1994, and I don't remember it coming out then, or I'm sorry, November of 1990. Yeah, four. Yeah. 94. And I don't remember it coming out then. I thought it came out earlier, but I guess that makes sense because this was a June movie. I remember that we rented it and we were going to watch it back from on like a Wednesday night. I guess it was probably the Advent season. and uh, But I couldn't wait. I wanted to start it right then. So I popped <laughs> the thing in and just watched it as much as I could until we had to go. And we got all the way through the, the elevator sequence. And I remember I had to turn it off as the last lady was like stretching her hand out. Oh, no. Oh, man. Shut it, shut it off. So I was like, ah! And we went to went to church and came back home and, and started it over and, and watched it from the beginning. And it was awesome. I loved it. I mean, <laughs> how, how could you not at a young age like that think that this was just awesome? <laughs> well, and do you remember what's kind of funny is because he, in the beginning of the film, buried that tool in the side of that dude's head i remember i couldn't remember so heather was watching it with me you know where they're building the drama while the elevators move and i'm like somebody's gonna get cut in half i don't remember this but i'm pretty sure someone's gonna get cut in half and it's gonna be disgusting oh and uh luckily that did not take place but man it was close yeah it was and it was a very tense sequence right at the beginning but i thought that Mm -hmm. was really it's really well done the whole movie is really well done actually Mm -hmm. um even though it's there's some some cheese in there and i got some I got some gripes with some of the plot points, which we can get to in a minute. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, overall, I thought it was great then and 
it still is. I still think it holds up. Oh, sure. Now to jump into the conversation about plot points, because there is one thing that I I was thinking about as I was watching this. It's not the kind of thing I think you would have thought about while watching it. If the bus eventually goes below 50 and it blows up and everyone dies, he doesn't get any money because his leverage is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he has as much of an interest as anybody in the bus not slowing down. So I don't know. It almost feels counterproductive that like, you know, we're talking about he's got all this leverage because the bus is still going fifth. But if it slows down and it blows up and everybody dies, he doesn't get any money. Well, yeah, not today, but tomorrow they'll play a new game, as Sandra Bullock said, or as Keanu Reeves said to Sandra Bullock. Tomorrow we play another one. So he'll just rig something else to blow up the next day if this one fails. Mm-hmm. My gripe, and I even thought it at the time, but I was probably too young to uh, to really put it into words. But when he tells him where the bus is initially, when he's on the phone telling him he's got a bomb on the bus, he looks over like he's got some kind of laptop in his car or something. And he tells him exactly what intersection the bus is at. Mm-hmm. And then when he, you're in his little command center, he's got a little um, screen that you can see, which shows you the location of the bus on a map. So clearly yeah. he's able to monitor the bus's progress. And it even says says what the speedometer is what speed it's going yeah and we are led to believe throughout the entire movie that he's one step ahead of them somehow and it turns out the fact that he's one step ahead of them is because he's got a camera in the bus and he's able to see them right a big reveal at a certain point yeah Yeah. so they loop it they record it they loop it they transmit it out so he can't tell that they're unloading everybody from the bus but then the bus blows up if the bus blows up wouldn't his screen just kind of disappear and he wouldn't think so anymore like he wouldn't he he would know Yeah, he would have had another data point to show the bus blew up right he would have known immediately and not well past the point you know because i mean they he talks to them on the phone after the after the bus blows up and they're already Mm -hmm. set up with their stakeout in the middle of the middle of the square yep Mm -hmm. and you know that's when he realizes it but he doesn't realize it because his his little map vanished he realized it because he 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 finally catches one of the loops he catches the glitch the glitch in the loop yeah Mm -hmm. but here's another plot point too that i i have a problem with and i thought about this one over the years too and apparently somebody may have asked uh, Graham Yost about this in latter years. And he said, oops. <laughs> what Whoopsie. Yeah. Um, why did Keanu not shoot the tires out on the bus? The first time? It, poof. Tires well, gone. Not only that, but when he approaches the bus, just pull the badge out. Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. show the badge until the bus is well away from him. Right. Mm-hmm. If he walks up and the bus driver won't open the door and he just pops the badge out. Movie's over. Yeah. He opens mm-hmm. the bus. Hey, what's Same up? With- There's a bomb on the bus. Get off. And movie's over. Same with shooting the tires out. Aim and shoot. I mean, granny's on a busy freeway, but shoot the tires out, man. Well, and, <laughs> and that may be, I think, if we're going back to that 20 point disconnect between the uh, the critics and the, the audience, modern audiences watch movies movies like this and some of them can't let go of that stuff mm-hmm. like i remember when i was a kid if there was some massive climactic battle between two a good guy and a bad guy some massive shootout the idea of collateral damage people are dying around it didn't really i didn't think about it most people didn't think about it but then for some reason in superhero movies around the time we got to man of steel now we suddenly care about the fact that these battles are happening and people are dying in mass mm-hmm. um well, and that's... every movie after that we have to explain away oh well we've evacuated the city there's nobody here like they have to like put something in the script to explain it away because now modern audiences care that there might be lots of people who die watching this battle yeah, and I think that's one reason why we don't see a lot of the director Roland Emmerich much anymore. And he still will pop up every now and again. But I mean, Independence Day and then Godzilla and, you know, he was all mm-hmm. around for for death and destruction in the 90s. And Independence Day ends and we, you know, we reunited 
Will Smith with his wife and kid and, you know, Jeff Goldblum reunited with his ex-wife, I guess, there in the desert and they're all happy and everything. And yay, we killed the aliens, but a billion other people are dead, <laughs> you know, like. Right. Yeah, we, that's, I don't so know. I feel like there's that cynicism that modern audiences have that we just didn't. Yeah. And I never would have, that never crossed my mind but it kind of maybe did a little bit when i think it was roland emmerich directed the day after tomorrow Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and i kind of had the same that's when i sort of popped in my head it was like wow happy ending except for everyone else except for everybody below the mason dixon line is dead yeah all the way to the pacific that's an interesting point i just that's one of those things that it's and and for me i don't know about heather heather can speak to this too it's fun to look back at movies that you have looked at as kids and say hey plot point x just ruins this movie if someone has mm-hmm. a cell phone, Home Alone doesn't happen. But yep. again, like like Heather, do you think the same thing? There's that cynicism about it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just, you know, I think I think it has to do with probably like world events, right, that we've seen over time. And that changes, like, I think culturally that can change our perspective on how we view those things. Like you, I, you, see, some, you see something like 9-11 happen, right? And then suddenly you see a whole bunch of people dying. That's probably going to bother you, right? I mean, Huh. Those those kind of things that happen that you see can change your view even when it comes to entertainment. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And like you are watching people jump out of those buildings on live TV and now all of a sudden it's kind of like, I don't really want to see an alien spaceship blow up a big, giant skyscraper anymore. Right. Yeah, because now sure. because now I think about the fact that people, you know, that people die in that. Yeah. So no, that's like a, that, it's an like, interesting point. Yeah. Like that all looked like a movie, you know, and it was not at all. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we watch movies that kind of go about that death and destruction like that again. Then, yeah, it's ish. No, absolutely. Um, and and speaking of destruction, lots and lots of road destruction on this film. Uh, lots of chases. Uh, the bus rap manages to defy gravity at least one or two different times. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Trevor? The greatest, uh, one of the greatest movie jumps that never was uh, the bus magically floating above the ground with no ramp. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. And actually, we uh, we watched this movie in a in a physics class in high school. He didn't send home any parental waiver forms or whatever so we're just we're a bunch of 15 year old kids watching an r-rated movie in the middle of class and granted i think everyone had seen it by that point but mm-hmm. still when the uh when the office buzzed in to call a kid out to come down to the office for something in the middle of keanu reeves dropping an f-bomb that was that was pretty funny to me hey and and that's a move like as a teacher that's a move that you got to know your audience like in literally bitty wayne county where i went to school you probably get away with that in wake county like yeah no yep. <laughs> without giving away your school one of the most populated areas and one of the most opinionated populated areas of the county well one of the largest school districts in the country too yeah you know yeah. wow I mean, not not anywhere near the size of like new york and la but but it's still pretty big yeah and mm-hmm. you know it's um, one of the biggest in the state well it's the big, biggest in the state for sure yeah yeah that's uh that was kind of funny to me but <laughs> i remember the scene when the bus jumps that the gap the teacher paused it he goes okay is this physically possible <laughs> and there was our physics lesson for the day <laughs> he, he sit he sits down he checks the box on his activity form under showing the form yes relates to physics 3.1 use of motion <laughs> yep Yep. Oh man. Whatever oh. he was, uh, and maybe you can relate, Scotty. He he was a he was a coach of something, and uh, he was probably more concerned with that than he was with uh, the actual teaching of us. Eh, you 
no, I, I can't begrudge people for that. One of my favorite teachers at my high school showed us another Sandra Bullock movie uh, called The Net because uh, there was some computer hacking in it. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> it was using the internet to hack. <laughs> Enjoy, kids. <laughs> we're gonna, I've got to, you know, we're gonna do this now. But uh, again, I pretty much sure most teachers listening to this have made a blockbuster lesson at some point. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, jumping on that. Um, speaking of that, and the fact that uh, I would say I was very impressed through this film at the car chases, at the filming, the cinematography of the bus and, and some of those chases. Does anybody have any other chases or, or moments in cinema where we're talking about car chases that you would say stand out to you as like some of your favorite car chase moments? Are we are we doing another list? We can. Is we this can another, sneak is this another top five? <laughs> we, can, yes. we can sneak in another top five. We can go oh, to top I got a, I got a top right. five for you then. <laughs> I, I, I have one. Go ahead. Okay. Go. The Fast and the Furious. Of course. Yes. And it never ends. What have they made like nine of those? 10. I'm about to say that was a, a nice, good old plain original chase where all they did was jump a train, not, you know, insert a submarine into the trunk of a Honda in space. <laughs> I mean, I think they, they realize how ridiculous it is now and they just kind of are just going with it. <laughs> hey, dude, money's money. I'm not going to hate. Yeah. yeah. Trevor, you got one to throw in? Okay. Well, I got a bunch to throw in. Oh, um, do it. But um, I'm going to cheat on one because it's, I don't know if it, if you can constitute it as a car chase because it doesn't last too terribly long, but yeah. it's it's in a car and they're trying to uh, trying to escape something, so I guess it counts. And that's Children of Men from 2007, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Alfonso Cuarón directed it. Great movie. Yeah. Um, but there's a scene where they're trying to kind of evade some bad guys and they're trying to get away in a car, and the whole thing is shot in a single take. Oh wow! And it's just really really impressive. And it's just at in the car and. It, camera rotates outside the car and then back into the car and it's really really cool and you can see online how they did it and we're able to maintain that um that single shot look i don't know if it was actually a single shot it probably was knowing alfonso but um if they hit a if they hit a cut in there they they cut it pretty good so Mm. or they hit it pretty good so we'll call that number five number four we'll call duel which is steven spielberg's TV movie that he made in the 70s before he made a, a movie for theaters. That's one I thought um, you were going to point out. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. The whole movie is just a big giant car chase scene between the, the guy trying to, if you've never seen it, it's about a guy that's driving through Death Valley and he's being terrorized by an oil tanker truck. And the guy's just huh. trying to run him off the road. And that's it. The whole movie is him just trying to get away from this guy. Oh, wow. It. Yeah. It's it's so tense. Without that movie, we would not have Steven Spielberg. So it's amazing. We'll call that number four. So number three, a movie that is just one giant car chase scene. That's Mad Max Fury Road. Yep. Just take your pick. The whole movie from the start yep. to the end. Number Only two. Only seen in the list with a flaming guitar. Yeah. I mean, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> number two ronan amazing the only reason anyone remembers that movie is because of the amazing car chase scene in paris awesome mm-hmm. and then number one the undisputed best car chase scene of all time is the french connection which we okay. might get to on our best picture series one day good list let yeah. me see what have i got i'll throw a couple on there i'll throw two others on there mad max fury road was on my list definitely because i remember how much fun because me and you and another friend of ours went to see that film and we had a lot of fun watching that like there were so many moments mm-hmm. that were just so bonkers we were all just laughing and watching it happen like the aforementioned faceless guy playing a heavy metal guitar as it shoots out fire while it's chasing people yeah <laughs> it was just so bonkers my number one is going to go to a tarantino film the chases in death proof death proof yeah so good. so good so good uh featuring um and heather hasn't seen this one so that's one where there is a guy who's trying to basically trying to kill these women but uh they do it basically he tries to do uh using a car a stunt car to kill the women but there's a, a, a actress named zoe bell who actually is herself a stunt woman and she does so many great shots like literally driving down the road full speed hanging on to the hood of the car 
there, mm-hmm. like real, real as it gets. And that was part of that Grindhouse series, that and Planet Terror. That was a really fun experience. Yeah, Zoe Bell's done a lot of work with Tarantino. So when he asked her to be like in the movie and actually act, she was like, yeah, sign me up. That's a great movie. <laughs> Stuntman <laughs> Mike. Right? Cutting is, things. Is that it's Kurt Russell's name, I think. Yeah, Stuntman Mike. Yeah. Awesome. So I had one more. The Born Identity had a really good car chase scene with Matt Damon. And he is like, I don't know, he's like somewhere in like Miami or something. Because yeah. I just remember all these palm trees lining the street. Mm-hmm. And he is like, I don't escaping from some whoever is chasing him. I don't remember mm-hmm. all the details now, but I just, I remember that one. It stuck out in my mind. I thought it was really good. I saw that one on the I, list somewhere. I was like, Heather's going to mention that one. I don't know if it's the same one you're thinking of, but I'm thinking of one from the same series, which was in the Born Ultimatum. Really great. Maybe that was the scene. one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the second and third of those movies were directed by Paul Greengrass, who's very good with the, the shaky cam stuff, mm-hmm. uh, a style way too many people imitate, but not everyone has perfected, uh-huh. but he's seemingly perfected it and he does a very good job with it. And yeah, that one is full of shaky cam, but you never once feel like you are out of touch with what's going on. Like you, you can follow all the action, which is very mm-hmm. difficult to do. Even Nolan had, a, had a hard time with that on the first time he did some action with the Batman Begins. Some of his stuff was a little hard to follow there, but yeah, you know, you figure it out and you you move forward. And <laughs> that's uh that's one Paul Greengrass. I I used to say the world would be a much better place if he would just direct every action movie out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of action, a little bit of art imitating life. Uh, you guys may not know this, and you may have already read it in the notes. So a week after this film was released, a very famous car chase played out. Uh, in fact, one of the most famous uh, American stories of the '90s played out about a week after this. That on Honestly, became kind of eerie if you had seen Speed before you saw this. And uh, what would that be? The OJ chase. Yeah, oh, the famous, right. the famous white Bronco chase. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so a literally, lot of people, literally know, one week later. Yes, literally yeah. a week later. One of the most like popular, one not popular, but one of the most talked about days in American history in that period in the nineties. Well, and they had like the some of the some of the shots in Speed were those aerial footages from the news cameras, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like the very next week, you're seeing the exact same stuff but with a bronco instead of a city bus see that's what i was saying about how stuff that happens like can really affect Mm -hmm. how feel about these movies can you imagine if speed had come out like three weeks later yeah (laughs) so maybe maybe that's a good point maybe that's why people are they they see it they don't realize the timing of it and they see that stuff and they're like man they're just ripping the oj thing off it's like (laughs) yeah that was this was filmed in like august or september the year before so right it was made Mm -hmm. well before this of course but yeah that is uh that's a very good point that one week later, some of the same shots that everyone saw in the theater were on the TV right in front of him at home. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Pop quiz, hot shot. Somebody in the backseat is on the phone with the police threatening to kill himself. If you don't stop, what do you do? <laughs> uh, yep. I did find a funny little side note here um, about some of the stuff that happened during filming. So Sandra Bullock, we do know, I don't know if we've touched on this, this kind of launched her career in films. Oh yeah. She'd been around before, but this was it. Like after mm. this, she was, she was it. Yeah, she was off to the races after this. So very funny story. Apparently her and Keanu Reeves had this very, again, they have really good chemistry in the movie. Um, there's this kind of authentic thing, but they're also kind of laughing at the absurdity of it. And some of the lines in the film kind of point to that. Like when they're making the joke about how relationships born out of tragedies don't work or something like that. Mm-hmm. So apparently on the fil- on the filming of the film, 
they both had the hots for each other, but neither one wanted to tell the other. Yeah. <laughs> so like they had this really funny moment where both of them in separate years went on the Ellen DeGeneres show and both of them essentially said the same thing. There's even a clip on YouTube out there of Keanu Reeves around the time the film was made talking about Sandra Bullock and he sounds like a guy describing his high school girlfriend. Oh yeah. He's, oh, I, just, wow. I think I've seen that. He's completely enamored talking about her. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he uses the word springtime to describe her like aura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Dang. And, yeah. And, and Sandra Bullock did the same thing when she was talking to Ellen DeGeneres she said you know sometimes you look at him and you look he looks back at you and you're like Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. like she just really like very giggly so we all know there was a film made after this film <laughs> that was nowhere near what the first film was mm-hmm. we're of course talking about speed to cruise control yeah Keanu was smart to stay away from that one I point that out because Keanu did apparently answer someone's question about it he was on the Graham Norton show in 2022 and if you've ever seen that show you know they're incredibly candid on that show like Graham really does not pull punches when it comes to asking them questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the guest stars who was with him asked why he didn't do speed two, and he was on a satellite feed and you can tell as soon as he heard the question his like body language kind of tightened up because i think keanu was one of those truly nice guys who doesn't want to say anything bad about anyone like i'm not sure i've ever heard him say anything bad about anyone and he's just one of these people that's hard to find somebody that has a negative opinion of him uh, as a person but he said uh, his exact quote was uh, i didn't respond to the script i wanted to work with sandra bullock and i loved playing jack traven i love speed but now it's on an ocean liner Speed ocean liner. It was a time in my life where it was, it was the combination of the time in my life and where the script was. I'm sure we've all had those moments where things don't feel right. And that's how I was feeling. Well, a lot of people will say this is die hard on a bus. And if you're going to stick a thing on the ocean liner, then that's, you're getting into under siege territory there. And uh, yeah, I don't think that was. Cause then they try to pivot and basically make Sandra the hero of crew of speed too. Yeah. A little bit. Cause I mean, she was dating another cop, but I don't <laughs> even know. It's such a, it's so such a terrible movie. The only redeeming value is maybe Willem Dafoe. Cause uh-huh. he like, he goes for it. Like he knows he's got such a terrible script and he's just in it <laughs> and he gives it his all, but he always does that. So it's right. Just, uh, I don't know. The movie's absolute trash. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Keanu was just really nice and didn't want to admit that sometimes actors look at the script and they could say, Nope, that looks like a wreck from a mile away. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure that happens a lot more often than people are willing to admit. Cause even he sounded a little, what's the word? Like he was trying to be diplomatic. Cause he even said something about, I don't want to disrespect the artists who were work on this and work on their craft. But because I feel like there's that kind of thing where, like I said, Keanu just doesn't seem like he wants to say bad things about people. No, and he won't because he's a genuine good dude. Oh, mm. I think that's really awesome. Definitely. So speaking of Die Hard, Trevor, you brought it up. I don't know if I agree with this take. Is this really a copycat of Die Hard? No, I don't think so. It's I mean, anytime you're going to have an action that's confined to a small place or to like one location, which this is, I think you're going to you're going to see that, especially when it involves terrorists and holding people hostage. I mean, that those are your similarities there but i don't think it's i mean bruce willis in that one he's just sort of wrong place wrong time and he's kind of a reluctant hero you know yes. here travin's like yeah let's go you know he <laughs> yeah he really wants to save everyone's life and mm-hmm. you know he seems to really have a beef with this guy the dennis hopper and mm-hmm. yeah but i don't think it's die hard and i think another connection there is yandabont if he's involved as the yeah. guy who filmed uh die hard and now he's directing this one i think there's 
people might draw some comparisons there. Uh, so fun fact, because he's so used to being uh, a DP and a cinematographer, a lot of the, a lot of at least the handheld shots in this movie were, were done by Jan himself. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like he just was like, rather than describing what he wanted, he just took the camera and did it himself. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. One thing I couldn't stop thinking of on, on the rewatch on this one was what must have been like to, to film this movie because you're not in one location. You're literally driving. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's an excellent point. Kind of a continuity nightmare if you think about it. Well, yeah. If you have to mm-hmm. take two, you got to reset everything. <laughs> you got to yep. put yeah. all those cars in reverse and go back to the. Oh beginning. my gosh! When when I was looking at the Matrix, Revol- the Matrix Reloaded, uh, some people mentioned that car scene, even though that thing is very CGI heavy. Trevor's making a ooh face. Uh, it's very very CGI heavy. No, I'm not. <laughs> but it was one of those where they had to shut down a section of highway and, like you said, stop, start over, and go back to a mark every time they were going to reach out. That's expensive as crap. Yeah. But I mean, there's like, there's no trailer. You've been driving and it's like, all right, it's like, you got to go to the bathroom. Okay. Let's drive three miles back so we can get you to the van that'll take you to where your trailer is. Wow. I mean, that's got to be. And like, I don't know. It, it just, it's, that would have been crazy. I mean, it was probably hot as hell out there mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. on that bus. You can't Ooh. have any, you can't have any air conditioning running on that thing because the mics pick it up. So, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it must have been hot. Oh, yeah. Miserable. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh man. I do. We, mentioned it earlier but i do want to uh, give an honorable mention to alan ruck's character as the tourist because he was just so bad <laughs> in oh, terms of was, like yeah. being Awful. a very typical tourist uh, in fact i read somewhere that sandra bullock's scene where she pretends there's gum under her seat so she can get away from him she actually improv that scene mm-hmm. i've heard so, that too yeah his presence here is just really funny because he's he is kind of the comic relief in a kind of a way mm-hmm. you know i've already but, seen the airport yeah i've already yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've already seen the airport yeah him and uh, him and ortiz right that that thing with Ortiz was pretty funny. Yeah. Gigantor. Gigantor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really, really good, good stuff there. Actually, I did have one more note to point out here. Apparently, Jan DeBont cast Keanu as Jack after seeing him in another very famous action movie that was made before this, which was probably Point Break. Yep. He said, uh, he said Keanu was vulnerable on the screen, not threatening to men because he's not bulky, but he looks great to women is uh, Jan's exact, com- uh, exact comment. Well, so the first two people that the studio wanted for this were William Baldwin and Halle Berry. Hmm. Uh Interesting. Yeah, because I guess... uh, No disrespect to either of those two, but... This was at a time when William Baldwin was, you know, in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always remember him in Backdraft, which was about maybe three or four years before this one. He was good in that movie. He was. He was. And, and into into 94, he was still doing stuff too. So, I mean, they felt like he was action material and could do it. And Halle Berry was not quite poppy. She's probably still like in, in the Sandra Bullock area of her career at that point where neither were, they'd done stuff, but they weren't like the stars they are now. She had um, a very sharp take on it from what I remember. She said something like, uh, it worked really well for Sandra. I would have just been the black girl driving the bus. Yeah, I think I've heard that too. And I know Ellen DeGeneres too, even even read for this role too. But um, I, um, you, you um, think sir, about- um, Jack, yeah. Jack, uh, Jack, uh, crazy time on the- I don't know. I just can't picture Ellen delivering those lines. Well, here's the thing. Like we, we say that because we're so used to seeing this, but if if it was William Baldwin and Halle Berry and it was a hit, yeah. and then we said it could have been Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, we all would have been, what? Yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> that's, that's true, yeah. You know? I guess that's a fair point. Yeah. But even like Ellen DeGeneres' comedy, like her delivery in comedy would have sounded the same way. So it would 
would have been the way you would have pictured to hear it. But no, you're, I, I definitely see your point. But I think Keanu wound up doing really well with it. And, uh, you know, after John Wick, obviously, he's been in several other good, uh, successful action films. I guess kind of taking it home then, let's talk about uh, what we thought about the film on the rewatch. Uh, Heather, it was your first watch. So uh, what did you think about it 20 years after you didn't see it? <laughs> it was entertaining. The chase was really fun. And like I said, I was positively mortified by the opening scene. And I was like, oh, this does not bode well. I am not going <laughs> to like this movie at all. But it did get better. And I did uh, I did enjoy it. And, and I like puzzle movies, like where you're trying to figure out, okay, what is this person going to do next? And, and I think there was kind of a little bit of an element of that with the, the bad guy. Okay, is he a step ahead? Mm-hmm. Like, what's, you know, what's he got planned next that we don't know about? Well, and that's what I think makes this film not Die Hard, because for significant portions of Die Hard, Bruce Willis is playing a disadvantage against those German terrorists. Like, they they have the up on him quite a bit. He has to kind of sneak around and, and do things like that, whereas Keanu and Dennis Hopper are just having a chess match. But that's that's my general take on that piece. Uh, Trevor, how about you 20 years later? 30. <laughs> ah, crap. Um, yeah, you're right. But, uh, it's all right. Well, first, I want to make a correction. It wasn't it wasn't Billy Baldwin that they were looking at. It was Stephen Baldwin. Oh, okay. So sorry, Stephen. Even worse. I don't know. They're all all those Baldwins kind of run together for me. So yeah, I really enjoy it. I mean, I can poke some more holes into it now that I'm older and more cynical, but um, I still really enjoy it. I still think it's a great, fun movie. It does hold up. I think it is really, really good. I agree with Ebert. You know, he gave it four stars, which is his highest rating. I don't I don't think I completely disagree with that. No, I would uh, I would concur. I think that uh, correction 30 years after, uh, I think it does <laughs> definitely still hold up. There are going to be moments when we watch movies that are this old that we see those, those plot holes, those things we didn't think about the first time we saw it because we were different people and occasionally they'll tank your opinion of the movie like say Top Gun where it completely tanked our opinion of the movie god this dialogue is horrible but in this case no the action still holds up nobody really cares that the bus appears to defy gravity it's just a really cool moment anyway because the bus essentially jumps a whole big section of the road and uh, no I I think this film is excellent very entertaining and and well worth it so that would be my general thought on that but uh, so I guess we got to get on CompuTron fire that up and look at what we're going to be doing in March besides watching basketball. Oh yeah, it is almost <laughs> March Madness. Let's wow. Go. Hard to believe. <laughs> I know. We just had the Super Bowl and now we're going to have that. It's gosh, it's going to be gosh, going to be Christmas before we know it. Yep. Well, um all right, we'll fire this boy up here and we'll see what we got. All right. Let's roll. And we're going to No whammies. Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. Scotty. Hmm. Who are you going to call? we're doing that we're doing that just in time too because we got the the new ghostbusters movie coming out uh at the april i think yes frozen empire yes can't remember the exact date i think moved around so many times man just just in time exciting just in time for that one what are the odds of that? <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters, man. Cannot. No, can't wait for that because that's another movie. I really have a thing for movies that I loved when I saw them. And and as they've gotten older, people have just come to appreciate them more. Uh, and Ghostbusters most definitely falls into that category, even before the remake, of course. I think we'll have a lot of fun talking about what that movie was supposed to be versus what it was. Well, uh, what they had intended for it to be. I mean, to be honest, I don't even need to rewatch that thing. We could do this right now. Oh, with quotes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. With quotes. <laughs> right now when someone asks you if you're a god you say yes yes <laughs> yeah see we don't even need to do this all right our movie our movie now is ghostbusters here we go <laughs>
Uh, well, I think we do have to give our uh, our, our listeners a, a chance to kind of catch their breath, check out the film themselves. In the interim, definitely check out Speed. Hit up Ghostbusters so you can talk about it with us in March. Please continue to follow us on our socials. We're so glad you chose to join us for this as we get another chance to look at another old movie with new eyes. 